Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sounds Familiar. My name's Caleb, and I also want to be Bill Watterson when I grow up. My name's Stephanie, and I once fought 20 Republicans behind an Arby's. (laughs) My name's Justin, and I may or may not be a big dumb fish. (laughs) (laughs) It's too soon to tell. (laughs) It's a little difficult to tell based on those intros what movies we're talking about, but we are talking today about... uh, Big Fish and Secondhand Lions, two, um, well, two films from 2003, and how would we describe our point of comparison for these two? Uh, they're both Forrest Gump knockoffs. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> they are both, I would say they are both stories about... Stories? There's, okay, they are stories about the former lives or the pasts of these older men who are telling the stories to a younger person that I kind of mangled that sentence, but I think we generally understand. (laughs) Also weirdly about fatherhood. Yes. There are definitely elements of there. These are, these are male stories. Like (laughs) I don't really know how else to put it. For manly men. They are not even that. Not. Yeah. It's, it's, they are very male stories. They are about men. They are clearly written by men. They And they are in some way kind of about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a person to, to live one's life, I think, but from a pretty specifically male lens, which isn't a bad thing. It can be bad in the execution, as we will discuss, <laughs> but I do like the, the concept of them for sure. Um yeah, did, um... I am the only person in this group who actively likes both of these movies. <laughs> oh, right, Justin, I... Wait, okay, so let's get into our experiences watching them, because I'm not really sure what Justin's experience with either of these is. Um, so this was my first time seeing Big Fish. Um, surprising, okay. because I went through a Tim Burton phase, as a lot of people <laughs> did in middle school. Uh, I just never got around to this one. Um, Secondhand Lions, I saw once in like fourth grade. So I had no okay. strong opinions going into either of these. Um, so I saw these around the same time, like within the same few years. I don't remember when exactly, but I believe both were in high school was it after we started dating yes it was after we started dating um and i only saw them once each so this was my second time watching each of them the first time she saw secondhand lions uh we were having a movie night at our friend jen's and stephanie or jen and i were both so excited for stephanie to see it and then she hated it like okay it it Look, it wasn't even that I hated it so much as I was very specifically annoyed about a few things. (laughs) I did not have a bad time watching it, which, by the way, was true this time as well. I did not not enjoy myself. I just have a lot of very pointed 
criticisms about some aspects of these movies. <laughs> Where are you going to hang all those axes you're grinding? It, <laughs> I got a few. I got an arsenal. Um, but but that is not the same as disliking it, and it's not the same as not taking anything away from it, as we will discuss, I'm sure. Um, okay, so... And, and so this is kind of a second time around for all of us, except maybe Caleb. I have seen both of these movies uh, many times. Yes. Okay. Secondhand Lions is a 2003 American comedy drama film written and directed by Tim McCanleys, who I've never heard of. It tells the story of an introverted young boy played by Haley Joel Osment, who is sent to live with his eccentric great uncles played by Robert Duvall and Michael Caine on a farm in Texas. So... First off, just in casting alone, um, I think Michael Caine was such a weird choice for this role. Not that I don't like Michael Caine, because I definitely do, but like he usually plays this very specific type of character, and that character is usually very British, for one thing. Yeah. So the fact that he was cast to play this like redneck Texas guy is funny to me, especially since you can definitely hear his accent struggling to to escape um, <laughs> many That's... times. And I'm like, were, were there no uh, redneck American actors to choose from? But um, so I, I, I just thought that was funny. And I think he does a fine job in the role. It, it was just odd to me. No, that's um, one of my first notes is that I love, I love his accent. You can tell he's having a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like, it. even just the way his mouth forms the words of like, oh, buddy, I know this is hard for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> Distorting the Queen's be, English. Yeah. <laughs> it must be painful for him. Um, oh, also right off the bat, <laughs> the title font for <laughs> when the title comes up. My note specifically was Arabian Nights as title font. It looks like something from Aladdin, and it just, like, shows you right off the bat, okay, this is where we're going with this. Like, <laughs> the uh, the Orientalism jumped out. My first note is, uh, the main character grows up to be Bill Watterson, question mark? <laughs> yeah, that's what his intro <laughs> quote was about. Uh, my first... My actual first note uh, is uh, in response to uh, uh, Haley Joel Osment's mother uh, telling him that if he doesn't learn to trust people, he'll grow up bitter and disappointed. And my first note is, is that why I'm bitter and disappointed? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this character. Right, so Walter is left with his uncles by his, quote, irresponsible mother. So... And just to be clear, when I said let's talk about this character, I did mean the mother. Um, my note about her was a totally non-sarcastic one. Um, Mom is a horrible bitch for wanting her and her son to be comfortable with the money that the uncles aren't using and will probably never use. Um, <laughs> That's a socialist if I ever heard one. Well, look, okay, so what I'm saying is, you do you ever watch a movie and you're like, Yes, this character is a horrible person, but I don't like that the movie is trying to convince me that they're a horrible person, or I don't like the way in which they're trying to convince me that they're a horrible person. So I'm I'm kind of of two minds about this, because as I mentioned to Caleb, I do like it when a family movie has the balls to take a parent character and be like, this character is not a good person, right. because most family movies won't allow a biological parent to actually be like the villain or right. to actually be a bad person. So th- the movie makes us wants us to feel like she's a bad person for several reasons and one of them i actually you know agree with um one of the reasons we're supposed to feel she's bad is because she is ditching walter with his uncles 
for the purpose of Walter finding out where they have their secret money hidden, their secret treasure. The reason I actually do feel that she is a horrible character and I hate her is because she is, like, known for dumping Walter somewhere and just leaving yeah. for months at a time. Yeah, and, it's a thing, and it's confirmed in the text. And apparently there is a cycle of her being with uh, horrible, abusive partners, which is a terrible, terrible Which comes back later, movie. yeah. Um, um, I, I, like, there were plenty of reasons for us to actually hate her, um... And I don't think the movie needed to lean into this whole mustache twirling plot with her so much. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. Yeah. It's. I don't like how it tries to depict getting the inheritance as an overtly evil thing. Because on the one hand, this is a classic story trope that, like, it's bad to try to get someone's inheritance. But then when you think about it, you're like, these two old ass white men are not doing anything with this money. Like, they don't even right. use the money. Walter they has just... to convince them to spend their money. Like, right. they're they bored and retired. And all they do is... So, traveling salesmen drive up to their farm because it's, like, the worst hidden secret in the world that they have a secret fortune. So, traveling salesmen come from far and wide to try and sell them stuff, and they spend their days by just casually assaulting strangers, firing <laughs> shotguns at them. Right, which is all supposed to be hilarious. Right. And this happens for a the good first chunk of the movie before Walter's like, what what are you guys doing? Yeah, like, <laughs> buy something. I do like Walter. <laughs> like, he, get a hobby. Yeah, he actually talks some sense into them. And to be fair, I do think the narrative kind of depicts him as right there. Like they are in a rut and they need to get out of it. Um, that being said, like I have never liked this trope um, of the. Uh, the wicked inheritance seekers because there's a whole there's a big difference between the two bad aspects of this like one bad aspect is you're only hanging out with your relatives because you want something from them mm. sure that's not great but the other side of that is they have made no effort to reach out to any part of their family they aren't doing anything with the money they're just sitting on it they don't even use it for themselves like they are not hurt by walter showing up and and they will not be hurt by a lack of relationship with Walter, at least at the beginning. Now, that changes later on. Right. But they're not like a lonely old person who just wants their grandchild or whoever to hang out with them and will be hurt that they only want the money. They don't give a shit. Like, anyway, so... Uh, which, we we get introduced to an entire other ensemble of family oh, yeah. members who are also, like, gold digging for the inheritance. Right, it's a whole thing. So, I, I think what we can take away here is using people for money, bad. Hoarding wealth, also bad. <laughs> yeah exactly so that's the setup is that the mom drops him off she wants him to try to find out where they're keeping the money and to get into the will if at all possible and there's also some talk about how like walter's got to stay with the men folk so he doesn't grow up to be a weenie oh god yeah oh by the way yeah as as soon as he shows up they insult his masculinity not to his face to his mom so it's totally fine i guess but yeah so that already left a bad taste in my mouth i was like okay yeah here we go <laughs> like um the 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 little the little boy child has to stay with the the big men and learn how to be a man because he tucks his shirt into his khakis and he's a weenie i guess like it eh, whatever but to be fair i do think that is subverted a little bit because there's never a moment where walter has to like prove his masculinity it, it's never about that for him um that's really the only right. thing that comes up too 
Right. Yeah, it's it, fortunately, it's not really a point the rest of it. And, like, his his compassion ends up being, like, the thing that saves him. Yes. Because he, uh, that's... Because the lion. The, yes. Oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. The, uh... <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Justin, do you have anything else to say before we dive in and move on? Uh, nope. Okay. Walter gets a room in the attic in which he finds a uh, travel chest that is full of dirt. (laughs) Why is it full of dirt? There's also a photo of a lady in there that I understand. Why was it full of dirt, though? (laughs) Yeah, so is it... Is that like a metaphorical second burial for her? I don't know. It's it's a little strange. Yeah, it is. I feel like if they tried... I don't think that's ever explained. Yeah, if they tried to explain it, maybe it wouldn't be as creepy to me as it is, but it, it seems yeah. weird and ritualistic to me. Yeah, that is a little... Did hmm. not occur to me. Oh, God. Mm. Well, we're just gonna yep. put a big old question mark on that one. I will say, I think this movie is fairly well shot. Like, the yeah. wide shots of like the Texas countryside look like paintings from an artist whose name I do not know. <laughs> all right we'll put it in the description <laughs> uh yeah i i agree with you for the most part um some of the cinematography is very good some of the landscapes especially are very good but this movie feels like it's trapped in between wanting to be a disney movie and being a hallmark movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i see that what what makes you think that it's just so hallmarky. <laughs> it's so hokey. <laughs> Are we talking in tone, in look? Um, both, both. It, just... it is so maudlin. I agree with that. It definitely is. Um, which I don't inherently have a huge problem with. Um, I think. One thing I liked about Big Fish more than this one is that Big Fish felt a little less sentimental, possibly. Now, granted, there were a couple times where it was, but this one is very, like, it feels very traditionalist. It feels very sentimental. Every aspect of it is because, like, Walter becomes involved in, he gets wrapped up in his uncle's sentimentality, and then all the flashback stories are sentimental. Yeah. It's... It, it, it's very, yeah, it feels very, I don't know, very American, very, I don't, I am trying to steer away from using the word conservative because that's kind of loaded. It, I would call it traditionalist for sure. Um, there is very little that is new being said here, <laughs> which isn't inherently a bad thing. Uh, but yes, it feels very classic Americana, um, which which feels intentional, to be fair. Um, yeah. Speaking of the background stories. Uh, I'm could be the first night. If it's not, it doesn't matter. Um, so in addition to finding the photo in the chest, Walter also finds out that his uncle Hub sleepwalks. Um, so he goes out to check on him, and guess what? His uncle Garth is also there. Um, and this is where Garth starts telling Walter the stories about their their shared childhood. Yeah, Garth is kind of our. Both of these stories have a, a narrator person, but um. Well, in both cases, it's the older person, but in a little bit different ways. Um, the strange thing about Garth as a character is that 
while he is both a narrator and a character in the the stories he's narrating, he is never the main character, which is something that I have a rant about and we'll go off on later. Yeah, he's an accessory to his brother's stories. Yes, yeah. and that I'm gonna wait till the end. I'm get I'm okay. gonna put a pin in right, it. But yes, yeah, so I, I have a note about that for when we get to it too. So. Yes. So yeah, Garth is the storyteller. He it's never hub. Is it ever hub telling Walter? He tells him how Jasmine died. Very okay, yes, but we don't see that one because that's No, we don't get a flashback for that. Um, Um, But uh, just real quick, um, the first time he goes out there, um, his other uncle isn't there. That's when he sits with the dogs and falls asleep with the... Oh, uh, right. Yeah, he just falls asleep on the grass with the dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I said that only to say this. My next note is uh, that next morning when they're having breakfast is uh, grandpas know how to make the fuck out of some breakfast. (laughs) They said they couldn't cook. Yeah. Uh, Hub said he wasn't going to cook. Garth probably prepared that one. Um, Stephanie noted there's this funny little moment where like (laughs) where uh, where Walter looks outside and like standing at the door is the chicken with a rooster on his head. The pig. The pig with a rooster on (laughs) his head. And then he looks down at his plate and it's it's sausage and eggs. <laughs> it's this really judgmental look from them, um, which was a little funny. So and- I think after that day is the first time the other family shows up. Yes. And Hub and Garth decide to keep Walter around because the other family members are pissed off that Walter is living with them. So which, they basically do it to spite them. Um, when the, I can't remember his name, the, the father figure of that other family. Yeah. Uh, grabs Walter to like scold him mm. he aggressively grabs him I was like whoop that man's ass yeah <laughs> yeah they're, they're all the characters in this movie exist on a scale of hateability well except for I guess Walter and maybe Garth um I kind of hate every other character in the movie but um <laughs> those are those two are the only ones I kind of like um but yeah so basically Right, as I wrote in my notes, um, everybody wants the money, but it can only go to the worthy. That's kind of what the movie is setting up. Like, it's clear that something is going to happen with the money, and people are vying for it, and it's like the sword of King Arthur. Like, right, and Arthur is, or Walter it. is worthy because he's the only one not actually trying to get it because he doesn't yeah, care about the money. Because right. he's a child. Yeah, Why does he care? He's a child, yeah. And it, it's something these kind of movies always do that's actually a little frustrating. It's like, whoever wants the thing the least and tries to get it the least is the one who gets it in the end. Like, that's probably a parable about it or something. It's the same thing in the craft. It's where like all the girls who try to use magic are punished for it. Whereas like, it's the girl who just happened to have it. Like who is the good one. It's a little, (laughs) a bit of a, an uncomfortable message to send, but it's just like, you better hope you luck into something or you just don't get it. But of course it's also about having your heart in the right place in this particular story. But you know, um, so, yeah, they're all trying to get it. Um, in the meantime, there's all these freaking Looney Tunes shenanigans with the salesman coming by, <laughs> um, which is there for some reason. Each of the salesmen is trying to sell the uncles something different, and it's super hilarious because every time they come up, the uncles um, shoot at them with... The, the guy shoot guns at them, and it's funny. It's funny. Um, and so, but eventually, what is it? One of them comes up and Walter, like, convinces them to... 
to listen something. what he has to say. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Unfortunately, it's something they would want. Yeah. He, he sells them, like, what is it? This machine that sh- shoots stuff into the air and then they can shoot it with their guns. Yes. It, shoot, it fires clay pigeons. Which is also like what happened in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but under very different circumstances. But they, they also used a shooting machine in that. Um, Skipping the obvious skeet shooting joke. <laughs> and moving on. And, uh, you know, they buy packets of seeds to... They've been to Veggie Garden uh, that turns out to be entirely corn. <laughs> yeah, where, where, however that happened. Um, then that night, right? The, fair, the Well, the family stays the whole weekend. They leave when they realize they're not getting anywhere. And then we start to get the flashback stories. Well, uh, where, before the family leaves, um, the, the first night they're there, um, they cause Walter to run off. Um, and he calls his mom. Or the school his mom's supposed to be at. Oh, right. Walter runs away. And, right, his mom left him contact info. And it turns out she's not where she said she was going to be. So now Walter has no idea where his mom is. And he's going to run away to Montana for some reason. Yeah, did, never did said why, why he um, but then the uncles convince him to come back and stay with them. Right, that's actually kind of a semi-nice moment. It's like the first time that anyone's emotionally genuine with anyone else. Right. Much um, and they have this whole chagrin. Yeah, of course. They, they have this, it's a nice moment where they don't just say, come back and stay with us, like they're still playing along with his plan to run away, like, you know, we got we got better maps back at the yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. Man needs sweet. a good map. Yeah. It's like, okay, we obviously know that he's on some random teenage bullshit, but we're just going to, like, let him be, but also convince him to come back, which is sweet. So let's get into the stories, kind of, that they're telling, because this is how their backstory is unlocked. They're a tragic backstory, or one of their tragic backstories. It, so when Hub is sleepwalking, Garth starts telling Walter the stories of how they came to be where they are. So they went on holiday to Europe as World War One was starting and they just get reason. drafted into the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, I guess they weren't Sorry, up the news. Shanghai. Oh yeah. They um, randomly ended up on a boat that was going to they the They got war. drunk with a bunch of French sailors yeah. who then Shanghai them and two uh, heading to Africa. Yeah, for some reason. Um which this may be the only film portrayal I have seen of non-European battles of World War One, Because it's usually, yeah. like, in the trenches in France. Yeah, so that's no, cool. This, um, I don't know. When did Hidalgo take place? Oh, that was pre... I want to say that was, was still, like... like the late 1800s That was, like, cowboy... Right. We need to talk about Hidalgo we'll talk, on okay. here. We can find something to pair with that. But, yes, um... Yeah, so they, once again, we have white dudes ending up in Africa. Um, white savior in it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yes. So quite literally, they white, I'm sorry, one of them white saviors it up. So after, after. After the war is over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fucking. He becomes a uh, hub. Whatever his name is. <laughs> hub becomes like, he fights slave traders yeah the the bedouins the, Bedou- <laughs> the bedouins um they've never seen anything like this white man who could fight like 20 I men <laughs> i cannot with this i really can't because they didn't have any brown men who could yeah fight like exactly 20 men. there was not a single person in all of middle asia who could fight like this random redneck ass man from america 
Um, yeah, so that's that's a thing. Um, so basically, the story here, I I do not know what Hub is short for. So short for. I'm gonna guess Hubert. short for. But that's the thing. They say like a hub, so I just think a Hubbard. Well, they wouldn't time. call it a Hub. <laughs> Okay, you know what? I take that back. They did do that in Jimmy Neutron. (laughs) There was that one episode where Hugh referred to himself as Hubie Doobie. (laughs) Uh, So I guess I'll go ahead and get my uh, my note about um, the Garth and Hub comparison out of the way. Uh, uh, Hub is like a character from a kind of shitty action, like B-action movie. Yeah. And uh, Garth is a person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right garth is just a normal dude um hub is literally like a 1920s or 30s swashbuckler hero it's so it's so incongruous i think is what bothers me about it because the uncles are both portrayed as like a unit you know initially like right it's hub and garth like, right they are a packaged set that is how they are sold to us but once the stories start happening and actually, not just in the stories, but but in the the present day narrative too. Garth does not have an arc. He does not have a hero moment. He does not have a reason for being there. He does not have a tragic backstory. Did he have a wife? Did he have a lost love? Did did you know nothing? Literally, they, he has no reason to be there except to be the storyteller for Hub. So I don't know why he is there. I don't know why they didn't either just have Hub tell the stories or have him have a fucking housekeeper or something who just, like, tells the story. Like, I don't understand why they're presented as this package set, this unit. Like, they both went on the adventures, but then only ever give any development to one. It bothers me so much. Like well, it's, not, it's not even that they went on the adventures together because until... And we'll get there until um, Hub needed help dealing with the uh, the Sheik. Uh, Garth wasn't That's in true. the picture. They went he wasn't even. Ways. Where was he? Where was he? I'm just imagining him like cartoonishly with wearing like a woman's outfit, like sneaking into the camp, <laughs> like <laughs> with like a veil over his face while Hub is like fighting everyone because that's what they made him do in the freaking part with the Sheik. Oh my god! I'm not even. They I will get into this Garth- a little bit. Uh, they said what Garth went off to do, but it was so forgettable and just like a it was like he went back thing. home or went back to travel Europe or something. Wait, they he said was, oh no 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 he Hollywood. was uh, he was leading Hollywood. safari expeditions. Oh wait, what was the thing about you know what it doesn't it literally doesn't no matter. he said something about Hub like could have gone back to Hollywood and sold his story but oh, okay yeah. yes all right right yeah and but Garth regardless was it doesn't matter. For writers and Hollywood folk, I believe is the quote. Yes. Okay, huh. you're right. The story does not care about him, and that bothers me so much, like, to the point where I think I actually, for all my problems with it, I think I would enjoy it a lot more if it gave both of them an arc, but it's so, like, it just doesn't. It's just, like, and it especially bothers me because, like, I don't know, because Hub is the really traditionally masculine one, and he is, like, the the freaking mustachioed, sword-waving dude, while his brother's, like, the nerdy one with the glasses who never gets the hero moment. I don't like that. I want the nerdy guy with glasses to get his hero moment, and it bothers me that The he one doesn't. time he possibly could, it gets undercut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Ooh, we'll get... Mm. We're gonna wait to get to that, because I want to <laughs> continue talking about this little storyline here. Um, but yeah, it makes me really mad. So, anyways, so he white saviors it up, um... And he, uh, one of the 
the I guess the slaves that he saves is the handmaid to the princess or something. Oh, by the way, the prin- we do not know what she is the princess of. We do not know what the country is. We do not know where her parents, the uh, presumed king and queen, are in all of this. She's just a princess for the sake of saying that she is one. Um, so the handmaid goes and tells the princess about the this dashing handsome American, man <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, about this white dude. Knocked over the phone, my bad. We're in close quarters in here. Stephanie uh, was getting hand wavy. Hand wavy. Hey, hey, hey. Um The princess's so. name is Jasmine, by the way. To which I was like, with that fawn at the opening, Princess Jasmine <laughs> knew I knew what they were doing. <laughs> Some Aladdin bullshit. Yeah, I don't I okay, I would not presume to know whether that is an authentic, like genuinely like Middle Eastern name. But I'm going to guess that it is not. I could be wrong. Um, but it felt really weird to me because I was like, y'all really only know one na- one name for, for attractive Middle Eastern ladies, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it, it just reads like, ah, what are we going to name her? Ah, what was the Disney lady? <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was that chick's name? Yeah, that. Um, so, oh, right. There's this part. So <laughs> this is fucking... <laughs> They're riding... I'm sorry. He is randomly riding his horse down a beach. (laughs) We do not know why. He just is. He He was on a date with himself. (laughs) He was like, I deserve some me time. (laughs) And so he... Hub is... uh, According to the story, he is riding his horse down the beach. And then suddenly... (laughs) This other masked rider just comes in and starts chasing it for no reason. You gotta admit, this would freak you out, right? Like, you're just, like, you're just going for a leisurely stroll down the beach with your horse, and then this crazy person just attacks you. She just, like, pulled up next to him, and they just start racing. Okay, that's true. She didn't even attack him. She just was like, yo, what's up? And he was like, yo, wanna race? I don't, I don't understand any of this. So they just do this. Wait, how do you make friends? (laughs) What did you say? How do, Wait, you make how do you make friends? Yeah, I, honestly. Right, and and the movie does not tell us, like, how she knew where to find him. Like, this dude randomly... No, like, he likes beach. to ride his horse on the same beach every night. <laughs> That's how he gets his exercise. It's incredibly easy for assassins to sneak up on him. Yeah, right. So she, she gets the drop on him. Uh, they ride down the beach... They fall into the surf. Oh, yeah. And oh, he comes yeah. up, he pulls his sword, is like, he's ready to go. And then she, like, pulls back her veil, and he's like, oh... It's a lady. <laughs> it's a sexy lady. No way she um, could be an assassin. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. That, a, a sexy lady has never been an assassin before. That couldn't be a thing. Um, so uh, it's a, obviously a love at first sight thing, which is something that both these movies do. And normally I would complain about this, but given the uh, scale, I guess, or given the intentionally epic scope of the stories we are dealing with it, uh, I'll let it slide. Though I do have you know, other stuff the to heroes say. of both of our movies get drafted. Essentially, they get pulled into wars that they didn't want to fight. Exactly why these are boomer narratives, which I will talk about more <laughs> later. Um, 
the these stories are about boomers romanticizing themselves and their pasts. So let's just That's my big thesis. Let's just talk all the way through the flashback storyline. Yes, let's just do it. Yeah. We're already almost to the end. There's not that much to it. Oh, but the Sheik, um, Caleb, the, oh, the, the Sheik. The Sheik, the, the most sheik. cartoonish villain I, I have ever this seen. Character. Okay, so basically it's love at first sight. Turns out she's a princess. Oh boy. She was going to be married to the Sheik. Mhm. The Sheik of what? You don't know. The princess of what? You don't know. Um, also, we don't know how her parents feel about all this because you would think in most stories like this, the, the king or queen or whoever are like, you have to marry this person. And she's like, but I don't want to, but they're just not in it. So we just don't know anything about that. All we know is that she apparently runs off with him and marries him, though we don't know how they managed to do that. And the sheik is mad and he wants revenge. For stealing no, we woman. do know he. So she said she was gonna kill herself if she was forced to marry the sheik, and that's where Hub like breaks in and fights the guards, and then like he catches her right as she's about to like slit her throat, and then they run away together. Right, but then it's like, but how did they manage to get away? I I don't. It doesn't. Matter. I don't know. He managed to get in. They can get out. Okay. Yeah. So there's this admittedly really great part um, where, first of all, she she tells all her handmaids that she's gonna kill herself. Because she has to marry the sheik. Um, and she, like, cartoonishly pulls out a giant knife. And, and they all gasp. Um, and th- there's this other freaking cartoonish part. And it's <laughs> awful because of the context. But so Hub breaks into the place, like... Um, and he's fighting these guys, and he asks, like, where the princess is, and all the handmaids point, like, all at once in the same direction. <laughs> and she's standing there just, like, stock still with a knife, like, up in the air. It's, it, the cut is so, like, quick and cartoonish. It's pretty I, funny. I, it's hilarious. It is very Looney Tunes. Yeah, it shouldn't be as funny as it is, but... So there's this Princess Bride moment where she's about to stab herself, and granted, I, I like this part, because, you know me, like, it's... The, I, I like that it's it's stupid and cheesy and romantic, and so and then he grabs her and they kiss, and we don't know what happens after that. They just kind of escape. They run away and get married, and they spend their days on the run being chased by assassins. <laughs> because <laughs> yes. the sheik is mad, right? Because the sheik, yeah, he's pissed. Uh, this uh, character, what uh, the the freaking sheik? I don't even. What is he? He is a cartoony villain. Uh, that was my only note. Is uh, yeah. <laughs> th- this entire rescue sequence became a cartoon? Oh, um, it really is. And it's um, also this rescue sequence is uh, where uh, Garth has his one potential moment. Uh, under oh my god! Right. So, okay, there's, so there's there's a there's this. a bounty on Hub's head. Hub lets himself get captured because I'm presuming they conspired to do this. Yeah. Um. Gar- yeah, because Garth is there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Garth is dressed up like an assassin and in brown face. Oh, yes. He is in just straight up brown face. And uh, turns in Hub for the money. <laughs> Garth is telling the story. And, you know, Hub is taken down to the chamber of 1,000 and something tortures. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. How many was it, 1,387 tortures, which, to be fair, was a little funny. <laughs> um, and the movie knew it was funny, which is part of what made it funnier. Um, th- there are signs pointing to like tortures one through five hundred thirty-three, <laughs> and like the, the <laughs> that was also some Looney Tunes bullshit. There's so, there's a funny. lot of that, yeah. um, and <laughs> then so Garth is supposed to like you know take out the guards and break Hub free, and then Walter stops and is like, Uncle Garth, is that really what happened? Because even he knows that Garth is the cuck to Hub story. <laughs> 
So the one chance to be the hero that Garth would get. It turns out he was so laden down with gold, he couldn't move or do anything, and Hub had to rescue himself and save both of them. I hate this so much. I hate it because it is literally the movie acknowledging that it never lets Garth be the hero, and yet still doing it anyway. Like, because... (laughs) And it's almost kind of sad because it's for at first it's like he puts a spin on the story like he wants to spin it like he was the hero. Um, And then it's literally so sad because the kid is like, we know you were never the hero. So what's the real story? And he's like, "Okay, Hub was the hero. And it's just it's I hate that. Like, what is the point of that? I don't understand the point. Like, so it's basically like so once again, he didn't do anything. And Hub waved his dick around. I'm sorry. I meant his sword. And save the day. Oh, I'm sorry. And then he goes to fight the Sheik, and there's this freaking. <laughs> the, 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 he, then the Sheik grabs two swords. Oh, oh, yeah. the, the sh- okay, I don't know who played the Sheik, but his his smile, like the, the, if they wanted a cartoonish vi- guy, like villain, they got the right guy to he play. He was it. really funny. <laughs> yeah, he was good so in the role. So they have so a sword this fight. Errol Flynn bullshit. Yeah, and here. then naturally Hub wins. And he gives them a speech about how, like, twice now I've held your life in my hands. Okay, I did like that line. (laughs) (laughs) And twice now I have given it back. Like, the third time I will not be so merciful. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. (laughs) And then he pulls pulls an Aladdin and just walks off the edge of the balcony. Right, but then he get he was like he landed on his. Oh, horse but it turns out he's not pulling an Aladdin. He's pulling a Princess Bride because the horses were ah. there. Right, and he apparently just smashed his balls or something. <laughs> landed on the horse. I, I can't imagine. There was a whole episode of Scrubs about that. that. There's no way he could make that jump. <laughs> exactly. Um. So so basically, the Sheik stops pursuing them after that. Right, and that's like the end of the flashback stories, right? Um. Yeah, except for the oh. very brief sad flashback after. You mean the one where, like, he goes back to join the French Foreign Legion? Yes. Ah. Yes. So, basically, the end of that story that we don't find out until a little bit later is that because this movie doesn't know what to do with any women characters, uh, Princess Jasmine, I'm sorry, ex-Princess Jasmine, died in childbirth along with the baby. And that is what has got Hub so messed up. Understandably, but uh, and that's like that's it. It's never touched on again. It's never really talked about or dealt with. It's just like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. she's dead. Just which we already knew. It is treated (laughs) as a little bit of a mystery whether she's dead or alive. What happened to her? And we do find out eventually, like closer to the end of the movie, that that she did um, die in childbirth and. That's kind of the the turning point. Once again, I think the way the movie deals with Garth's character undercuts this too, because that was the turning point for Hub. That was what like took him from this like adventurous, I guess, idealistic young person to what he is now, like in the in the the movie's contemporary time. But we don't know why Garth would be part of that. We don't know why he would have never had a life of his own or why he would have just followed him there to be despondent despite despite not sharing that same tragic backstory. I I think it falls apart a little bit upon examination, but what do I know? But anyway, so, so it does come out that that is what happened. Um, she died. And that's kind of the entirety of the... 
the flashback stories. Back in the real world. In the real world, the stuff they bought that a lion. Not that interesting. Yeah, they they bought a lion. Which so, the scene where they buy the lion and they're critiquing it and talking about how it's old and used and messed up. They're just skirting around saying the name of the movie that whole sequence. <laughs> this is a secondhand lion. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I also wrote down in my notes. The secondhand lions are the uncle's shocked face. Whoa. So they're, they're going to hunt the lion. And then they're annoyed that it doesn't do anything. So Which Walter can, is so, so messed up. I know. No, it, it's, it reminds me of that um, Dennis Feinstein quote. <laughs> Have you ever gone <laughs> fox hunting? They drug the foxes up real bad, so they just kind of lay there, and you walk up and shoot them. It's deeply Pow. erotic. <laughs> God. I mean, Walter calls him out on it. He's like, that isn't very sporting. And they're like, we're old. This is as sporting as it gets for us. And we're like, okay, so you're old dudes. You're going to shoot an old lion. This is all sad. Yeah. Um, but So they don't. Walter right. says, I'll take care of it. They go to the, like, the, the feed store, and I love this gag. This is also very Looney Tunes. Yes, it is. They buy bags of Purina Lion Chow, <laughs> which they've already used Acme in this movie. If yeah. this wasn't like a paid sponsorship, this would have just been Acme again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's it's Looney Tunes. Um, and and so yeah, they're taking care of this lion. Oh, Hub has a heart attack. Oh God, you're right. There's they have this. To take him to the hospital. Okay, there's this. While they're loading up the feed, there's a cool little, like, character thing where Garth and Walter are having to, like, two-man the bags, and Hub is just throwing them over his shoulder by himself. Um, but then he gets himself a but heart attack. But then he has a heart attack. It, yeah. So it's, it's really good, subtle character stuff. Yes. Um, Hub has a heart attack and leaves the hospital as soon as he's conscious. Oh, yeah, and while they're there, this lady is talking to Walter, and she's she like, like, they're bank robbers. Those crazy uncles, they're bank robbers. They work for the mafia. Yeah, exactly, which I made a note that there should have been a Mean Girls-style um, montage. montage with everyone talking about the uncles and saying all these outlandish rumors that they heard about them. <laughs> like, I heard they do car commercials in the Middle East or something. <laughs> like, um, so, yeah, they, they've got this big old outsized reputation. Um. Oh, there's also the God is, the store scene where he cartoonishly fights all the, like, he greasers. He gets to do a knife fight with a bunch of greasers. Uh, I wrote, I have a note that says, ugh, redneck greasers. Oh, God, that's even worse than the regular ones. Yeah, so there's this stupid bullshit I, where they Okay, fight. I like this scene, and Stephanie was talking over it the whole time because she was going on about how much she hated and how stupid it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sitting there, like, I'm just trying to enjoy the movie. <laughs> okay, to be fair... To be fair, I hate the scene less this time because I like what comes after it. I like the kind of clever little subversion that, like, instead of just beating them all up and leaving, they actually... <laughs> he brings them back home. They cartoonishly ride home in the truck, like... Right, he drives the, their car back. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and they... Um, and, oh, right, and there's the part where they're all, they all get right, their guns. Okay. <laughs> he puts, they put stakes on their faces because they got black eyes, blah, blah, blah. The family who are trying to, like, weasel their way into the money show up because they heard Hub had a heart attack. And the their, her quote-unquote quote snot-nosed little brats uh, free the lion. And <laughs> there's the, this hilarious so, shot. The lion runs into this field of corn, which is way more corn than they actually planted. Yeah. But what do I know? It just grew um, and grew and grew. And everyone gets a gun and there's this great shot that's just 
a ridiculous amount of people wa- file- walking single file out of the front door, all holding rifles. <laughs> and then all of them line up side by side, like, holding rifles to go into the cornfield. Even, like, the little girl has a rifle and, like, everyone's going. The, the two little boys are sharing a rifle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, which is pretty funny. The movie's actually funny when it, it leans into the ridiculousness and is aware that it's ridiculous. Um, so they do that, but the, they find the lion, and she's actually... She's just playing with Walter. Yeah, she's nice. She licks him, um, because they have a rapport now. There's a very obvious hand puppet lion <laughs> in the close-up shot of the lion, like, on top of Walter. Yeah, it's not a real lion. <laughs> what? Uh, what? <laughs> Get out of here. Um, they keep calling the lion the king of the jungle, and I just want to point out that lions don't live in the goddamn jungle. They live in the savannah, and I want to go back in time and, like, find the person who coined the term king of the the jungle and just karate chop them in the throat. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Oh, also... Every time the lion is on screen, this ridiculous as Africa by Toto music plays in the background. Uh, I didn't even notice that. You didn't? There's like drums and flutes and you could could almost hear the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so like stereotypical uh, movie African music every single time the lion is on screen. Um, also, Walter names the lion Jasmine, which upsets Hub. And Hub Walter, is like, huh? Yeah, doesn't really understand it. Why did you say that name? <laughs> Thank you. I, I was like, there's a reference I'm thinking of here. I, my brain couldn't put the two together. Because <laughs> to be fair, this is before he knows about the tragic stuff that happened with her. Um, so the lion, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so does anything the, important happen after that? I don't think anything really important happens until his mom shows back up with her shitty boyfriend that she right, met in Vegas. Uh, well, they had a hub and, um, oh my God, I forgot his name, the kid. Walter? Uh, Walter? Is this where he gets part of the, what it means to be a man speech? Uh, yeah, he, uh, so Garth tells him that he's not going to tell, uh, or tells Walter that he's not going to tell him the uh, end of the story. He has to get that from hub. Uh, so the next night, uh, Walter finds Hub sleepwalking again and gives him a blanket, which was nice. And then they have a nice little moment of like, oh, what are you doing out here? And then Walter is just like, why is she dead? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I know what you're trying to do, but delicate there, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Justin, kids are many things, but subtle is not one of them. Yeah, delicate's not one. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so he tells him about this, um, and gives him part of the, what it means to be a man speech. He's like, and then Walter's like, you gotta give me the whole thing. You gotta stick around long enough to tell me when I'm old enough. Oh yeah. Because he was fully planning on committing suicide by plane. That was like the subtext there, right? Oh, I mean that he basically does. They just wait until Walter's an adult. That is kind of what happens. (laughs) Because like he, he buys the plane and when he's, like, out there working on it, that's when Garth's like, you better ask him soon. And it's not saying it as a joke. He's, <laughs> oh like, Oh, my God. Serious. That's dark, man. Garth's like, well, Hub's working up to kill himself again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I can always tell when he gets in the mood. Jesus. I just... It's so depressing. And it's depressing because it's, like... Because Garth is, like, his caretaker. Kind of... But, like, 
they're t- treated as the same character, but then also not as the same character. It's really weird. Is Garth just playing Alfred again here? Yeah, he's like redneck Alfred. <laughs> I don't... I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay. Then, Walter's mom shows up with her new boyfriend that she met in Vegas, who claims to be a P.I., and, the like, the first thing out of his mom's mouth is like, did you find the money? At this point, we have forgotten that, like, that's why Walter was here at all. Yeah. Um, and, hey, so, lo- several notes here. So, the boyfriend takes Walter, uh, just the two of them, to go find the money. And Walter does the thing. <laughs> The boyfriend asks him where the money is, and Walter looks towards it. <sighs> Not only does he do the thing once, he does it twice. Yep. Um, so the boyfriend starts just wailing on Walter. He just gives him a sucker punch to the stomach, and you're like, oh, cool. This is where we're going. But then he gets attacked by a lion, and you don't feel bad for him one bit. You do end up feeling bad for the lion, though. Yeah. She went out on top. With her boots on. <laughs> yeah, the lion is very old, and she has a heart attack from all the excitement. <laughs> and but, dies. I mean, at least she saves Walter yes, from getting... Yes, she, she dies saving up. Walter, and she really fucks this guy up. She doesn't kill him, but she does put him in a cartoonish... He's in a full, um, full body cast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, again, very Looney Tunes. Oh, yes. This There's movie a lot is... of Looney tunes mm-hmm. I don't know why. I didn't realize it sooner. <laughs> Extremely so. Um, but... And that's kind of that's kind of the climactic moment of the story. There's so well, Walter did find that they do just have a giant basement yeah. just full of saddlebags of cash, which they got from the the sheik. Right, that was probably the left the money from the sheik. Yeah. Um, and so. The guy ends up in the hospital. Walter leaves with his mom and the crappy dude. Um, and she doesn't plan on leaving him. Hub and Garth have this conversation where they're trying to figure out how to, like, if they can get Walter back or, like, get him from his mom. And Garth is like, no, there's no way a state with the state would take a boy from his mom and leave him with two bachelor uncles. And Hub is like, we could buy him from her. And I'm like, yes. That would totally work. Right, they totally brushed <laughs> this off, but with how mercenary she is, they could have just offered yeah, her some money. Yeah, they could have given her a single like, bag full of cash. And she would and, be like, well, here y'all go. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they would have never seen her again. Actually, that's not true. She probably would have blown through the money. And then showed up for more. But if the point being that if they really wanted him there, they could have easily bought him from her. And yet they treat that like a non-starter. <laughs> yeah, like Garth's like, no, and I'm, that's exactly the plan that would work. Yeah. Um, but Walter ends up like having a conversation with his mom. He he jumps out of the car, um, not at highway speed. Um, and he has a whole talk with her where he's like, why don't you do what's good for me for once? And this well, is like the only, only part that. of the movie. Huh? Uh, not only that, but um, his mom is saying when he's telling her to leave uh, the shitty guy, um, his mom tells him that uh, they have no choice. They like the, they have to go with him. And he's like, well, maybe you don't. And I know this movie has made us like hate this woman. But the fact that it even addresses that she is trapped in this cycle of abuse that she finds herself in. 
Right. It was really a downer for the it's mom. It's really shitty. Yeah, this is the only part of the movie where we, as the audience, are made to feel sorry for her. Because, like, when he's telling her on the bridge, he's like, do the right thing for me for once. And you, like, see that, like, she is struggling. Like, she genuinely feels like she's stuck and cannot leave this And he asks, like, has he hit you yet? Like, it's just really fucked up. It like, is. <laughs> and obviously he has. Yeah. Because she cut the way she reacts to it. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so this has She happened. yells none of your business at him. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's just really depressing, especially since, like, we can only assume she's just gonna go off with him, and it's just gonna continue, and, like, yeah. I don't know. We don't ever really find out what happens with that. No. Um. Very depressing. But, yeah. But Walter does go back to the farm, and it does end up, I guess, being, living with his uncles for the rest of, until he turns 18. Yeah, God knows how he got to school, but I guess they figured it out somehow. Yeah, I think they might have homeschooled or something. They had a conversation about, like, the, the traveling salesmen selling school supplies or something. Interesting. Well, uh, well, no, because he said uh, they have to go to PTA meetings and stuff. So oh. He <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of funny. But, yes, and so he grows up to be a cartoonist, apparently. Right, like, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about the cartoonist sub subplot for a second here which isn't really a thing he no okay so he grows up to be a cartoonist where he illustrates like newspaper comic strips about a little boy who lives on a farm with a bunch of dogs and his friend the lion it's very clearly Cowan and Hobbs um it was actually uh all of the cartoons were illustrated by the uh artist behind Bloom County uh Guy Berkeley Burke breathed um, so an actual, like, well-known newspaper, uh, comic strip artist. Um, but my whole point is that if they had just, all they had to do once or twice was, like, show Walter, like, sketching in a notebook, maybe, showing any urge or desire to draw or have any sort of artistic expression, um, because this is a, it's a whole huge thing, and it feels like there should have been some lead-up to it. Yeah, I agree. That they're so pointedly showing what he does as an adult, um, that it would have just taken like a Captain America esque showing him drawing in a notebook just once. That's true because there was no reason for them to specifically show what he grew up to do. So the fact that they do it makes you feel like there should have been more set up for that. Yeah. And like I like it. I like the decision. It's cute. I love it. I just wish there was some hint of it beforehand. Right. Yeah, because no all we really knew about his hobbies is he was a reader. Yeah. So why didn't they? Why didn't they show him drawing? You know? Why didn't they? show him reading newspaper comics and it's very strange yeah um and then he gets word that apparently his uncles died in a plane crash so So earlier in the film uh he told them not to do any dangerous stuff until uh high school at least preferably until he finishes college and when it picks up, it's assumed that he's uh, relatively well. No, because he's a little older, so he's he's a little bit out of college. Um, so yeah, he they fix the plane and they crash. Thirties. The yeah, <laughs> and it turns out, yeah, they died in a. They they crashed into a barn or something. Presumably intentionally. Which is kind of dark. Well, no, this one, this one seemed fun. This one seemed like an accident. They crashed upside down into a barn, you know, baller way to go, I guess. (laughs) For an old man. Yeah, definitely. Um, Um, And then, then we pull the, uh, uh, Big Fish also kind of does this. Yes. We get to meet, not the person from the stories, but descendant of 
the the grandson of the sheik flies his private helicopter all the way to Texas to and ends up meeting Walter and says, oh, my grandfather used to tell stories of these two crazy Americans who stole all his gold. Which he wouldn't even know Garth, by the way, but... I t- yeah, I how did he... Would he have known that? That's true. I think he would. You're probably right. Um, but it did... Oh, we didn't mention that after Garth got all the... Or after that he got all the gold from the Sheik, he, like, struck oil in his country and became one of the five richest men in the world. <laughs> right, so he still ended up filthy freaking rich anyway, which is a little funny. <laughs> Um, and, and oh, Walter, Walter is even upset about, about it. it. He yeah. was like, "What? He got? He still got a bunch of money?" They were just like, "Yeah, <laughs> crazy, huh?" Um, and then they meet and they reminisce, and the his the the grandson's son is there. He's like, "So all the stories that great grandpa told were true? Yeah, which is Did those men moment. really lived?" And Walter's like, "Yeah, they really lived." Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He looks into the sky, and their faces are in the clouds, smiling and giving him a thumbs up. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Different movie, but still. Um. So many Simba moments. Yeah. This would have been perfect. It's a movie about a lion. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> um, I had a note, was, which was, I would have rather seen a movie just about a boy and his lion. Um, <laughs> just traipsing around Texas, uh, startling people. <laughs> comedically startling passersby with your ability to talk <laughs> yes um so so it's a nice little full circle moment kind of like they all grew up hearing these stories which have then been passed down which is very literal in the form of the, the little boy right and neither of them were certain it was true right. and then meeting each other they, they can find f- that they make true. it real yes which is a nice kind of little closing moment um it's seeing the person in the 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 story that you were told like um so yeah do you guys have any more notes about secondhand lions um i think we should get into overall <laughs> yeah yeah no, my i'm good i have a general note that like the all of the modern story elements the the plot of the brothers in the present day is essentially rage, rage against the dying of the light. Like that's their whole. Yeah, it's a, it's for old people that are are sitting on their waterbed and remembering what they used to be, or whatever <laughs> that line from Community is. Um, it's I don't know. Overall, uh, this movie, I do think it's a little, uh, it's a little too cheesy but but it's it's heartfelt uh it 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 reminds me of just like having a good talk with my grandpa (laughs) (laughs) um so despite all of its flaws like i I did have fun watching it uh there's a lot of problems with it but but it's it's cute it does what it does i think that and i put it well, for one thing, <laughs> I had a note that said, would rather see a movie about the memories, but I guess that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like, <laughs> every time I was watching it, I was like, as much as I hate this stupid, cheesy Errol Flynn bullshit, I would rather watch a movie that's just about this than, like, watch a movie about old dudes remembering what they used to be. But then I was like, to be fair, that's the entire point of the movie. (laughs) Is that, like, they're not what they used to be, and their life isn't this crazy, cool adventure now. Um, And things didn't go the way they wanted it to go. And now they have to to work with what they have. Which which is totally a fair point. Um, 
the thing about it is that the way the movie kind of goes, it, it seems like it's set up as like a family movie, but it doesn't seem to me like a movie that would strongly appeal to children. Like the mo- the the movie's like message seems very much for an older audience like an older older audience like for people who can kind of relate to that of like being near the end of your life um I don't know that I don't really know what the takeaway would be for a younger person watching this the closest I could get is like the whole be a man thing which like I said extremely male story it's very caught up in these ideas of what it means to be a man um and I definitely want to know the rest of the speech. Do we ever hear the rest of the speech? Nope. No, we don't. It probably has something about how you should always vote Republican or something in it. Um, just kidding. These but, guys don't vote. Are you kidding? Yeah, exactly. These <laughs> men have never been in a voting booth in their lives. You're right. Um, the thing about the this movie, <laughs> I say that a lot, is that, um, I don't know, it... In addition to the way that it's a very, like, masculine narrative, I also <laughs> noted that um, it has this kind of unfortunate implication in that the only good woman is a dead woman in the story. Uh, the, <laughs> um, the only female character who is, like, actually good and not presented as, like, bitchy or money-grabbing or anything is the princess jasmine who um i don't know if she ever speaks actually um but she does die so there is that um so we know she can do one thing she can do that oh she can ride a horse too apparently which is pretty cool i guess um and uh so that there's some unfortunate implications there uh i don't think it's a malicious thing necessary necessarily it's more just a function of like the character exists to provide a tragic backstory and all the other characters exists to be like annoying to <laughs> to Walter and the uncles. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. like the That's only kind point. of characters that exist. <laughs> but I will say this, I would prefer a character who comes pre-fridged. Oh my god. That's true. A char- Jesus Christ. A character who a would- microwave. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think I'm what sorry. Caleb's saying is like a character that it's not like she was actively in the movie and you get to know her as a character and then she dies, like, for somebody else's arc. It's just that she died before the story ever happened. So it's not like you have any attachment to her as a character. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's the thing that I both like and don't like about the movie is that it has this very romantic idea of, like, what it means to be a man and what it means to, like, live a full life, um, which is... Um, I like in a way because it's kind of adding a little bit of romance to what could have otherwise been a very dull <laughs> existence, you know? So it's like, it, I get, and it's kind of giving this idea of like, even if someone seems a certain way when you meet them, you don't know what they have in their past. You like, just because someone seems boring or seems lame or whatever, it doesn't mean that they, they haven't experienced a, a lot more than you could ever know. Like, I think that that's a worthwhile message to have for sure. Um, and that your life isn't over just because the exciting part is there's that too. Like they still have, they still find a reason to live when Walter comes along. So that's a very different form of adventure. Obviously it's a very different, like 
it doesn't involve personal glory or, you know, action and adventure. <laughs> um, but it, it is, it still means something. And they do have to learn that, which I think is a good thing about the movie. It, it doesn't necessarily say, hey, these old guys are right to be set in their ways. It kind of prods them a little bit and is like, maybe it was good that this younger person came and shook things up. Yeah. Walter is that meme of the dude poking a rock that's like, do something. <laughs> 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 yes, essentially, right. Um, and so I, I think there is merit in that, for sure. Um, I do not think this movie would come out today. Uh, <laughs> I think it's very much a product of, it, of its time. Uh, which was that kind of immediately post 9-11 mini conservative era that America had. Um, so I, I think that makes sense. And we'll get into that a little bit with uh, Big Fish as well. But yeah, I would yeah. I would give this one a six, six and a half. I think it's a, it's a competently made movie. Um, but I do have my issues with it. And like I said, not just from a, you know... A problematic angle, but also just because I think it really drops the ball with Garth's character, and that will forever be a sticking point for me. Like, just on a on a writing level, I think it doesn't make sense for the story the way that's handled. Um, yeah. Anything else, y'all? No. Uh, the uh, the official uh, critics consensus from uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which I normally don't. Uh, particularly agree with for most movies but in this case it uh, sums up my opinion perfectly a wholesome but schmaltzy movie (laughs) i think we can definitely agree on that wholesome but but schmaltzy (laughs) that's a great word by the way schmaltzy um yeah and on that note we'll be back after the break hi everyone justin here thank you so much for checking out our show You may notice some audio issues during these early episodes as we're recording them in separate locations during quarantine. It is our intention to record in person once it's safe, but for now, we work with what we have. Please follow the recommended guidelines, wear your masks, stay safe, and enjoy the rest of the episode. For the second half of our show today, we're going to be talking about A Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm just kidding. Wrong Tim Burton movie. It's Big Fish. Yeah. Not real Big Fish. The ska band. What? <laughs> See, I can't do anything. Stephanie's so out of it tonight. Timely reference. I don't know what Big Fish the ska band is. Real Big Fish, Stephanie. God. I don't know what that is. That's not important. That's supposed to be a throwaway line. <laughs> I like this movie. I also like Scott. Bite me. <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now. Justin, this was your first time seeing this movie. <laughs> yes, it it was. Um, uh, it was it was good. It was good. Um, surprisingly, well, at least in the first part of the movie, uh, devoid of Tim Burtonisms, but then it's hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, this is my second time seeing the movie. As I mentioned earlier, I saw it one time when we were, I want to say in high school, um, maybe early college. Um, I like it. I, 
It doesn't annoy me as much as Secondhand Lions does, but I also don't understand it as much as I do Secondhand Lions. It feels a little more Tim Burton-y in that it's got this weird kind of detached quality to it where it's definitely not as sentimental as Secondhand Lions, uh, but it's also kind of a little more out there and, uh, I don't know, cerebral? I don't know exactly how to put it. I've also noticed that, or just realized... And uh, another point towards both of these movies being uh, trying to be Forrest Gump knockoffs, they're both about main characters with, they, they all have got southern accents. That's true, they are all southern, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, for some reason. Mm. <laughs> Not really sure why. Because you like to hear old southern men tell stories. <laughs> Do I? <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie didn't know her grandparents. I did not. Sadly, three of my four grandparents passed before I was even born. Um, oh, it's but that's also, not why we're here. This movie is also uh, in Alabama, where oh. Forrest Gump is from. Yeah, you're right. Now, Secondhand Lines was Texas, but yes, this one is. This is the only time uh, Auburn University makes a film appearance. I know. I don't That's know probably not true. Why this... But it was a strange decision. I don't know why it was so funny <laughs> to me that this, like, magical, like, goddess woman is just some girl at Auburn like I don't that was just really funny to me um but we'll get to that um okay so yeah when I first saw this movie actually um I got really annoyed about it though I don't really remember what I got annoyed by I think it was like the usual stuff like a dude like obsessively stalking a woman it's kind of weird um, that's still a little bit of a thing, to be fair, but I accept it a little more in the context of the story because it's such a an out-there, larger-than-life story, and because we're kind of meant to believe that it was a little more exaggerated um, than it was in real life, which is another thing that we'll have to get to, but right. yes. Um, uh, but overall, I, I like it. Um, I think it is charming. I think it has some interesting parts. Um, all right, let's... So, it's about... So we open at a wedding, and the old man is telling a story. It's his son's wedding, and he's telling this story about catching a fish that his son has heard hundreds of times, and his son is so annoyed by this that he leaves the room. Yes, <laughs> and I sympathize with the son completely in this part. I should just go ahead and put it out there. Um, because it's his son's wedding, but he's telling a story about himself that doesn't involve his son at all. It's just, like, because he's kind of a narcissistic dude, and he, I mean, like, I don't think the story ever really refutes that. Like, there is nothing in the story that ever is about, like, how how he felt about his son or cared about him, or, like, how he felt about being a father that's in any true. real way like there's no, he never comes around and like accepts his son no he literally says i never much cared for being at home yeah it's <laughs> it's kind of dark when you think of it in that context like he clearly wasn't a good father um like not saying he was a terrible person but he clearly was not cut out for this so i think even though the son is a boring douchebag and i don't like him i do think he was justified in this case <laughs> um especially at his wedding man uh well Let's just say if my dad went off on a tangent about something that he cared about and that I didn't, I would be mad too if it was at my wedding. Not that I have any experience with that, but if I did. So the son doesn't speak to the <laughs> dad for three years. <laughs> yeah. I do have experience with that, but yes. Anyway, 
So they don't speak to each other for three years. God, I wish that were me. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus, Kayla. We're just all putting out our daddy issues uh, just tonight. Water almost went into my microphone. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Not specifically about my dad. It's fine. I'm. <laughs> Uh, uh, so this first part of the movie, um, do, does it feel out of place a little bit to you guys? Um, I don't know. The, this opening scene on the, they're on a cruise ship, right? Yeah, they're on a yacht. Like, that's where they're having the reception. Yeah. Uh, it just, it didn't, uh, it, I don't feel like it meshes well with the rest of the It was kind of kinda weird. It was no, and then, like, there's, there's no point in them, like, going and moving to London like I, I, I forgot that happened. Yeah, right. They live in London when they hear his dad isn't uh, isn't going to last much longer. I'll be willing to write that off uh, as it was for her photography career because she's a photojournalist. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yes. And he is so, in business. Yeah, <laughs> business unspecified. So they have to. It literally it just cuts to three years later that saying that they haven't spoken, and then less than five minutes later in the story, like they're back in the states yeah. and him and his dad are talking. So it's just kind of set up to set up emotional stakes, I guess. But I feel like they didn't need the three year separation for that. They clearly already didn't get along. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, so they come back. Oh, and Marion Cotillard is now pregnant. Oh yes, uh, Ma- Marion Cotillard is pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen, metaphorically. Um, which is so offensive to me because she's such a great actress and this is such a absolutely nothing role. Like, it's almost kind of hilarious seeing her in it. <laughs> yeah, this is not a, this is not a role for a woman of her caliber. Yeah. This is a role for someone who I know as much as I know the husband. Right. right like, which, which is to say, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I will, I will give them, I will give them this. At least they did give her an interesting career that you never see. That you see. never, ever see. <laughs> right, like, at one point she asks uh, the dad if she can photograph him and then, like, something happens and like we don't even see that (laughs) no she is there to be the wife and to be the but you should talk to your father she's the one who listens to the dad's stories because the son won't hear it but she is still she's still wild by his his charms charmed by his wiles (laughs) (laughs) she falls for his i did like uh i did like the scene where they're having dinner um and this is where we find out she's a photojournalist and he's telling some story about the Congo or something, and uh, the son is like, oh yeah, she was actually there. She was really there. That really happened. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she was telling As opposed to, like, the dad's stories, which the son doesn't believe any of them happened. I I missed that part. Right. Okay. Yes, so he goes back to see his dad, um, who is apparently being annoying in a typical old man way about about his illness and about like the meds he needs to take, about whatever else I don't even remember. His he mom won't drink his insure. Yeah, yeah, it's freaking. It's sad. That cantankerous old. Coot. But it's also supposed to be sad, so you know, like it. Yeah. Um. So he goes up to see his dad. Yada yada. I don't remember how he goes into the first story. Like how was? Does that I think happen? he was talking to the wife. Was he? He yeah. tells stories to different people in this movie, and I can't always remember who he's talking to at which yeah. time. Doesn't always matter. Um, yeah. it, it, Doesn't it start off with him saying, like, this is not how I go, or something? He talks about 
seeing the Helena Bonham Carter witch. Right, he goes. The they eye. go to see the witch. Yeah, we get the witch story first. Which, so I, I think he's talking to his son. Most of these stories okay. do go in chronological order. To be oh fair. right, he tells him that he didn't say this isn't how he dies. He just says this isn't how I go. This is not how I go. Yeah. Um. So okay, these child actors are terrible. Yeah, they're. Mm, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not. Good. One of them is Miley Cyrus. What? No. The the little girl in the group is Miley Cyrus. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I did not recognize her at all. I'm going to have to look that one up. Anyway, so there's... I love the little sequence where they're walking through the woods. So the kids are in the woods because they heard that there's a witch who lives out in the bog who has a glass eye, and if you look in the eye, you see how you're going to die. Oh. Uh, so uh, my, my first note was that uh, this is surprisingly lacking in uh, Tim Burtonisms. Yes. And then as soon as he opened the door and Helena Bo- uh, Bonham Carter comes out, I'm like, ah, there it is. <laughs> um, yes, you just are waiting for her to show up, and then she does. Yes. There's, at some point, apparently a cat screeches, because I wrote, I can't hear a cat screech without thinking of the season two Halloween episode of Community. <laughs> There's a crazy cat in here. We're not leaving until we find it. <laughs> Somebody throwing it. <laughs> yes. We, once again, Helen. Bo- we have Helen Bottom Carter playing a crazy old witch for Tim Burton. Um, and two of the kids see how they're gonna die. One of them yeah, turns out to be like an, an quote, quote unquote antagonist later in the story. Um. And um, the dad. What is the dad's name? Uh, Edward. Ed, yeah. Edward. Edward sees how he's gonna die, and he just goes, "Huh." So that's how I'm gonna go, and like that's that's the end of that little fable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fucked up, especially because these are kids. Um, but yeah. So. Oh, also, <laughs> we had a note here. That all the kids have a black friend, so that we know that even though they live in the the rural south, deep in the, south, and yeah, in the like what what was this the nineteen sixty? Oh no, it's way 50s. before that because oh, he ends it? up fighting in the Korean War. Oh god, you're right. So it was so like this the is 40s. the thirties or forties. So you know that even though they live in Alabama in the thirties or forties, they are not racist because they have a black friend. Because the. <laughs> So it's okay, you're allowed to like this old southern man, because unlike most other old southern men, <laughs> he had a black friend. Um, it, so yeah, that's a thing, even though that is like the only other... Let's see, are there any other people of color we see in this? There's the one doctor who is black, uh, the older mm-hmm. doctor, and mm-hmm. then there is the, um, the twins? Asian... The twins. twins, yes, which is a thing. Oh, I'm sorry. There's also the gentlemen who do uh, martial arts <laughs> when he comes <laughs> into the... Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get, we'll there. get there. Okay, anyways, <laughs> let's just... I don't... Okay, so... <laughs> It's hard notes? to follow the narrative of this story because it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, okay, so... A good portion of the movie, most of the movie actually, is up until the end, is the father telling the stories. And then it's like the son being like, oh, I don't believe you, and telling his wife, oh, you shouldn't believe him. 
And then there's really nothing until of consequence until the very end when, like, he starts talking to other people about it. So we're going to go through just the father's portion of his flashback stories, and then we'll discuss the end where, like, the son starts to find out more details yeah. from other people. Sounds good. Uh, just uh, real quick, my note um, at the end of this first story, I wrote, Have you ever been so stressed that you slam a can of insure? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The son comes out looking out so like he's pissed at his dad and he looks so stressed out and he just slams the insurance. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it was it's, funny to me. I need a stiff I'm drink. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about this the the relationship of the dad and the son is that we don't really know what the son's personality is. We know that he's annoyed at his dad for his his tall tales, but we don't really know why. Because we're not really, we because don't learn anything about wants, him. But they have a conversation later um, where, like, he's angry because his dad has never been completely honest with him. He does not know who his dad is. He only knows the version of his dad that, like, he tells in the stories, yeah. which which are all embellished. Um, which which is... there, there's a line where, where Edward says, like, I have, uh, I have never been anyone but who I am. Um, and... But you can still see where the son is coming from. His, yeah. his father has never once just leveled uh, with him. That's the thing. It's not even... Oh, go ahead, Steph. Well, the, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, even if even if the father was being 100% honest, and the movie kind of leads us to believe that, like, he was, but in, like, an exaggerating kind of way. Uh, so he wasn't even being, like, 100% honest. But even if he was, the fact that the son is even having this complaint obviously shows that he didn't have a real relationship with him. He did. He what? It doesn't seem like he was ever there for him emotionally. Like he cared about him as a person. He was all about himself. Like he was narcissistic. And I don't think the movie does a good job of refuting that if it wants to refute it. And it even doubles down on it because uh, he tells Will is the son's name, I believe. Uh, he tells Will that uh, if if Will didn't understand his father, that it was his fault mm. and not the father's. Like, he, he says that to Yeah. Him. <laughs> yes. And I, I think that the movie is kind of trying to have it both ways. This is all probably stuff we should be talking about at the end. But just real quick, I think the movie is unfortunately trying to have it both ways, where it's trying to be like, yes, he could have been a better father, but it never really faces that, you know? It just kind of skirts around it as like maybe he could have yeah. been, but we're not really going to get into that. Yeah, it's like it's it's, it's the son's fault for having problems with it. <sighs> well, that I mean, whether intentionally or not, the son is presented as the worst person here because he's the constant stick in the mud, and the problem is not whether or not he believes the story is the problem is that there clearly was not a real father son relationship here. And that's sad no matter which way you paint it. But anyway, this is all, this is all meta commentary. Yeah. Let, let's get back into the story before we get. So his fun romp. Yeah. Yeah. The fun we, stuff. So before to, to set the scene, uh, Stephanie had an idea that seemed to ring true. A lot of the, tales that he tells are very reminiscent of either Greek myths or biblical stories. Yeah. 
I think more so than secondhand lions, which I think if those stories are based on anything, they're more based on like like swashbuckly action adventure tales. Right. Whereas this feels like some of the flashback scenes are trying this to be, is, oh brother, where art thou? I like. See, I actually do really like this because it is it shows clear, like we said, mythical influence. Um, each of the the stories, especially earlier on in the more fantastical stuff, seems to draw from like um, there's. The Odyssey, um, right? And we wrote down specific comparisons for each of the the stories as we get to them. Yeah, the the one with the uh, working for the circus, so you can find out about freaking young Jessica Lange, um, is very reminiscent of the story of Jacob and Laban in the Bible. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, w- uh, which we'll get into yeah. a little bit later. So um, let's go through these a little bit. I'm- I'm wondering if that comes from uh, uh, the book, like if the book leans uh, more heavily into that, because we didn't mention it at the top, oh, yeah. but this film is based on the movie Big Fish, a novel of mythic proportions oh. that came out in 1998 by Daniel Wallace. I would be interested to read that, yes. Hmm. And, and mythic is right there in the in the name. Yeah. So, huh. All right. So we meet, or we jump back to Ewan McGregor playing young Edward. With a sometimes okay, sometimes questionable southern accent, much like Michael Caine. These yeah. movies have to cast these very European guys as um, <laughs> yeah, as redneck Americans. So he is his hometown. I can't be mad at him. <laughs> I know. I can't be mad at his face. It's too beautiful. So he is his hometown's golden boy. And there's this one random guy who he's, like, constantly upstanding without even realizing it. It's just like Edward does something good, and then there's that guy standing there looking kind of sour. <laughs> um, yeah. And then one day, sheep start just disappearing, and like there's a giant living in a cave on the outskirts of town, <laughs> which feels very much like the Cyclops. Yeah, especially with the sheep, because uh, Odysseus and his men had to hide behind the sheep when the Cyclops was blinded, mm-hmm. so that he would reach out his hands and he felt only the sheep couldn't catch them. So it seemed like a reference maybe to yeah. that. So Edward goes to talk to the giant, and Tells him to... He says he's been sent as a human sacrifice. Um, <laughs> it's like, if you could just go ahead and eat me, like, yeah. it's fine. But then he's like, you know what? We're, we're both too big for this town. Why don't we, like, leave together? Um, and they get a big send-off. And there's a parade. And the witch is there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, um, okay, I should point this out. The, the gentleman who plays the giant in this story... Um, was an actual man with gigantism uh, who passed away, I believe, a sh- like two or three years after this movie came out. Yeah. He passed away in 05. Yeah. So it, it does tend to take a toll on you, and people with the with this condition don't tend to live very long lives. Um, but I, I do love him in this, in this yeah, movie. Yeah, it's cool that they got someone who actually was a giant to play it. Yeah. Um, so they leave the town together, and they are heading for... Where are they heading to? God, I don't... I, they're, 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 I don't remember... I don't remember where they set out to. I know this is where he... Uh, Edward ends up in Spectre. Right. Yes. So the... the, the Edward the hears, destination was not the point in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Edward knows that there's this path that forks but then meets back up with the path that they're taking currently and he's like oh it's haunted and the, our town's most famous poet went that way and you know we never heard from him again and so edward takes that path and ends up in this town called specter 
in which time is kind of wibbly-wobbly. And... This is the uh, Cer- Circe's Island portion of the the Odyssey here. Um. I'm so glad you guys broke this down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm probably going to mix queen. up my references. Um, so, yeah, the, this is like the idyllic town. And honestly, it doesn't end up being as sinister as it kind of initially seems like right. it would be. Like, they let him leave. Yeah. The, the most they do is they're like, oh, how are you going to leave without your shoes? And he's like, well, <laughs> it's going to hurt, but I'm going to go. Just going to um, walk, yeah. It does end up being the reason that he doesn't have a relationship with his son, but we're good. we won't get too much into what? that. What? No. What? what? No, because uh, there's several lines where he says that uh, Edward was never at home, and it's implied that he was um, helping build up Spectre. Uh, oh, well, he does explicitly do that at some point later. Oh, um, yeah. yo, I'm dumb. I don't. <laughs> but he was also a traveling salesman, so that's another reason why he wasn't home a lot. Anyway, th- yeah, that's later flashbacks. Um, so he gets to this perfect town where, like, the grass is perfectly manicured, nobody wears shoes, and the poet is there. Played by Steve Buscemi. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. good. Um, and the town is just perfect. They just eat pie and dance in circles and have a magical fish that looks like <laughs> naked ladies. Right. So he sees this I've... fish and it's just... What was he just... <laughs> Uh, I was gonna say I I was really expecting this town to take a midsummer turn. Yeah, I was <laughs> expecting something hardcore sinister to be going on here, um, especially when he saw like yeah the mysterious woman in the moonlight. I was like, okay, he's something's gonna happen. It's not gonna be good. But no, apparently it's just a fish that likes to tease horny bastards like this dude. <laughs> um, so yeah, he sees her. Um, does anything come of that? No, not really. No, it just kind of happens. Um, um, so, so his interaction with Fish Lady is he's taking a walk because um, he was hanging out with the poet, uh, and then they went their separate ways. Edward kept walking by the river and sees the lady and then sees that a snake is going after her, and instead of yelling, yeah. ma'am, there's a snake. <laughs> yeah. He jumps in. Yeah, he was just like, let me just wrestle this snake. And then it turns out it was a branch. Yeah, right. It wasn't even a snake. It. I don't. This part's weird. I don't really yeah. understand. And it. then it also turns out that there's a uh, an eight eight year old girl in the town who is like in love with Edward. Yes, it's also kind of um, weird. Oh, when he gets there, he first gets to town. They they know his name and they say they're expecting him, but they weren't expecting him yet. Right. Um, hmm. Which is weird. And then, Mysterious. yeah, it's implied that the, er, this little girl is in love with him, and she doesn't want him to leave. Does anything else really important in this no. happen other than just like, setting that stuff up for later? No, it's just an idyllic town. He promises to come back. Okay. Um, so he leaves because he has to go meet up with his giant friend. Mm-hmm. And, I, I don't know, he's making his way through a bunch of brush and spider webs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but it's not really, nothing really that bad happens, and he makes his way out, and he just... Boop, happens to be right and no time has passed <laughs> yeah, right no yeah. time has passed basically um and they make their way to the circus okay we have a break there's obviously a break in the story here because i wrote flashback ends and suddenly i care less 
<laughs> yeah, that's the problem that these movies kind of set up for themselves, is that while they're supposed to be a meta-commentary on the, the this larger-than-life storytelling, while that is true, they also face the kind of insurmountable task of getting the audience to care as much about the part that is meta as the part that is, like, the interesting stuff, you know? Like, yeah. That's the problem. If you show an audience this these larger-than-life circumstances with, you know, giants and sheiks and, you know, sword fighting and magical fish, people are just going to care more about that. That's the problem. And then when you get back to the real narrative, you have to really bring it to keep the audience's attention. It, it, and it's just like the characters outside of the story have nothing to do no they're boring as i care more about i care more about um uh jenny and uh steve shimmy's character (laughs) and the giant more than i care about will or his wife well that's because everyone else is just sitting around waiting for this guy to die (laughs) (laughs) that's literally all they're doing right and that's the thing the they, the characters really needed to be a lot stronger in order to get us to care about the the boring human stuff, you know? Um, the re- the relationship-y stuff. The characters really needed to, to sell us, and I don't think they quite got there. Yeah. They all kind of seemed like either assholes in the case of the men or just kind of there to be there They're for just the there men, to calm down their men women. folk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's rough. So jumping back into the good stuff then. Yes. <laughs> uh, Edward and the giant make their way to the circus. And the that, circus that has a giant. The home of all oddities yeah. <laughs> so in early 1900s America, apparently. The circus already has a giant, but he's not very he's giant. He's not a real <laughs> he's giant. Not, yeah. We got the real thing here, the real deal. <laughs> My giant can beat up your giant. Yeah, that is almost, <laughs> almost literally how it goes. I love that the other one hops, like, into the back of a truck and just drives <laughs> Um, And so the giant goes to work for the circus. There's this uh, Deep Roy and Danny DeVito are there. Um, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And, Deep Roy just follows him around. Like, right. He's just there. Um, my note here was Tim Burton's friends. The movie. Yeah. It, yes. Now, yeah. what was that line that Danny DeVito said when he had the contract? Um, he's like, have you ever heard of... Um, God, exploitative employment or something like oh that. Oh my God! <laughs> Giant's like involuntary no. servitude. In- indentured servitude. Yeah, right. indentured <laughs> servitude. <laughs> and he's like, no. And he's like, great sign here. <laughs> it's, it's but then, as the circus is emptying out, Edward sees, as he would say, a whoa man. <laughs> and then she leaves. <laughs> And Edward right. is like, I need to know who that is. And Danny DeVito just <laughs> is casually asshole. like, he's like, hey, I know who that is. You say you saw a pretty girl. I know who that is. Right. That's the, <laughs> how does he know? I don't know. I, Maybe I wasn't paying attention and he yeah. said so, but I doubt it. Um, I don't. So Danny DeVito's like, hey. or No, Edward, pro- I think, convinces him, like, I'll work for you for, like, no charge or nothing if you'll just tell me who she is. You know, if he had just asked and been like, hey, tell me about this girl. Or I'll beat you up. <laughs> yeah, I would have just, like, yeah, like, been like, tell me now or you're losing a finger. Like, he would just be like, okay, man, I, I'll uh, talk. 
I have a note here that says, you ever simp so hard you volunteer for slavery? <laughs> for three years? Oh my god. Right. <laughs> three years. I can't. Three years this man is scrubbing fat guys and bailing out horseshit. This is the point <laughs> where the movie starts to when, get a little... When he gets... When yeah. he falls asleep and gets smacked by the merry-go-round thing and he goes flying. <laughs> it's actually pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> Looney Tunes yes. so, so Danny DeVito is like feeding him information he's like her favorite flowers it's are daffodils so dumb. I <laughs> like, she likes food <laughs> <laughs> but she yeah, likes music, music she goes to school <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then one day Edward is like alright just gonna man up I'm gonna go talk to him and uh, his wagon is a rockin <laughs> And, and think, Edward comes and knocking. You think something's gonna happen? <laughs> that something turns out to be that Danny DeVito <laughs> is a werewolf. <laughs> which, which this is not one of his uh, exaggerations that comes around in the end. Like no. we see, De- we see Danny DeVito at the funeral. But so like, we don't really know what he was on about. Yeah, like some of the things make sense. Like he says he met a giant. Oh, he met a really tall dude. Okay, I can see where he got mm. that from. Or, like, he said he knew Siamese twins. Oh, okay, they were just regular twins. But, like, he told me this dude was a werewolf. Like, <laughs> <laughs> He just howls him. Deep Roy had a pistol with a single silver bullet. <laughs> okay, that part was funny. I'm not gonna lie. Which shoots Edward. <laughs> and then he doesn't no, react to it I don't. I didn't he, like, falls over and he's like, that. oh, I've not been shot. Okay. No, and then, and then Edward solves the situation by playing fetch with Danny DeVito until dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, Stephanie predicted that we were going to see Danny DeVito ass. Okay, she was to right. be fair, I okay. So I predicted this when the like his camper was rocking. I was like, okay, he's having sex. Like that, he's like getting laid. Uh, Edward's gonna be weird and open the door and demand to know something, and then we're gonna comedically see Danny DeVito's ass and be like, hey, can you give a guy some space here or something? And then, but it turned out, <laughs> so it turned out he was not having sex. He was transforming into a werewolf but we still saw his ass <laughs> did i kill anyone just a rabbit but i think it was already dead <laughs> that would explain the smell and, and then he does this thing where he like scratches his head with his foot but it's obviously somebody else's foot coming in completely sideways from out of frame <laughs> and so uh, this whole sequence was yeah. delightful <laughs> but that's when Danny devito tells him the girl's name and where she's going to school She's going to Auburn. I know, it's so And it's funny. her senior year. The the mythical land of fucking Auburn. And so Edward makes his way to Auburn, um, where he just, like, st- strolls up to her, just, her sorority I house can't. and knocks on the door, and she happens to open the door, and he's like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we say this man was simping, what do you mean? He was... <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even. Oh boy! <laughs> she is nicer to him than she, than anyone That's would true. believe she's she really could, should nice have been. Um, and <laughs> she's just literally the only thing she says is like, "You don't even know me," and I'm sorry, I'm engaged. Yeah. She's not even like creep. Like, go away before yeah. I call the cops. Creeptastic. And then so, so what? He he then proceeds to say. I'm not going away, and then like harasses her for like That's weeks, true. and she just I smiles and laughs that. at it. I think this was the part where I started to get really annoyed because I was like, 
okay, so we're really doing this. Yeah, and he just kind of hangs out. Because at first, when he started to walk away from her door, I thought I was like, oh, well, he's going to accept his defeat with dignity. And he's, I guess, going to accept that he just flushed three fucking years down the drain for for this like nope but no he hangs around to harass her she takes it in stride and like there's like skywriting and she's like with her girlfriends they're just giggling she's like who did that she's like oh just my stalker it's so i know (laughs) did your fiance do that no no just this random dude who works for the circus who wants to bang just some carnies trying to get my pants (laughs) it's happened before like it's so his name is blade Um. (laughs) (laughs) so we're Number one, where did he get the money for the suit that he's wearing? He was working for free. Number two, where does he get the money for all of those daffodils? Wait, was, <laughs> he, actually, was he working for free? Yeah. He was working for information. Oh, my God. I can't with this man. How did he eat? I don't know. Maybe his giant shared his bread and scraps. <laughs> um, Carney food. So, it's so also, he, I don't know. Yeah, this all culminates in Edward planting an entire like field of daffodils in front of her sorority. And she's like, oh, it's so nice. And then her boyfriend shows up, who just so, or sorry, her fiance, who just so happens to be the random dude from Edward's hometown that hated him, that, like, Edward was constantly, like, one-upping yes. without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And now Edward is here to steal his girl. <laughs> and he... Uh, so, so this actor, uh, uh, David Dinman, who plays Don, um, he also plays Roy on The Office. I thought he looked familiar. And that dude... That dude stays having his fiance. I was gonna say <laughs> this. This man gets cucked so hard in everything he is in, like. And oh my god, I feel kind of bad for him, but he's always an mm-hmm. ass when it happens. So like, eh. yeah. So the fiance, or um, what was what's what's the girl's name? I can't remember her name. Jenny, was it Jenny? There's no way uh, he did. It's Jenny. No, uh, the. Uh, the one who ends up his wife, uh, her name is. Sam. Why did I think Thank it was you. Jenny? Because this is so like Forrest uh, Gump. That's the, that's Helena Bohm Carter's. Name. Oh, that's where I got Jenny. <laughs> Bonum, um, and oh, so S- Sandy <laughs> tells him to not fight her fiance, and so Ewan McGregor just gets the ever loving shit beat out of him. <laughs> yep. And then she ditches her fiance because why would you want to be with the dude that does that? Yeah. Um, yeah, to be fair, I like that there was this, I don't know if I would call it a subversion, but when I saw it, I was expecting him to beat up the guy, but instead the guy just beats him <laughs> up, but he still gets the girl, even though he's the guy that got beat up, which is a little funny to me. Yeah. I liked that. And once again, we have a character ending up in like a full body cast. Oh my God. And okay, this part is so stupid. He is in the hospital, like in fully in traction, <laughs> and he gets... He gets his draft orders to go fight in the Korean War. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sorry. That is the easiest deferment I have ever seen. Yeah, that would be a thing. (laughs) He just really wanted to go kill people. This man's arms and legs are in casts. He is not getting sent to basic right now. I know. I know. But. Was was there even a draft for the Korean War? I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about the Korean War. (laughs) Sorry. Well, Google told me this was the Korean (laughs) War, so. Um, (laughs) he takes all the most dangerous missions he can so that he can end his time in the service sooner Um, he parachutes into a uh, performance for the troops with this uh, singing uh, uh, singing Siamese twins yeah this whole thing (laughs) 
This is where he like breaks in backstage and we have the two dudes doing a bunch of kung fu show off stuff and like making sounds. This is which is yeah. Eh. But I do love the bit where Edward's just like nonplussed, puts on his night vision goggles, turns off the lights, and then like there's action sound effects and he yeah. turns the light back on and they're both unconscious. It's very Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they just <laughs> just a little bit different. Um so that's a thing. But is there's this whole thing where he has to, like, take the long way home. Why was that again? Beca- oh, because uh, he was faking his death, which never gets what resolved because, like, he makes what? his way back to the U.S. Like, he, the military believes he's dead, right? So his wife believes he's dead. And then he has to, like, he catches a raft with the twins <laughs> and, like, helps them come up with a whole act on the way from, like, Cuba to Miami. <laughs> Yeah. And then he just reappears in his dress uniform in his own backyard. And I'm like, my man, how how are you going to fake your death to the U.S. government and then just show back up on dry land and live your life normally? So did he fake his death because he was trying to get out of the military? Right. Yeah. Oi. So so this whole thing, uh, it was bothering me to no end. Um, Until later, they find the paperwork, and there's a one-off line where um, uh, Sandy tells Will uh, that officially he was considered uh, missing but presumed dead. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I guess by the time he came back, they're like, ah, we don't care. Yeah. I I have no idea. Okay. I'm fine with that. Yeah, so she thinks he's dead, but this is also very the Odyssey. Um, she she thinks he's dead, but she oh right, kind of... that is another thing from the Odyssey. Yeah, the Penelope. Um, she kind of, but she kind of, I guess, doesn't really move on with her life. But it's not very long after. How long is it, how long afterward is it? After Probably not even it? a year. Yeah, it's not been that long, and she's still living in the same house. It's very depressing. It's like, oh, okay, so I get the, I guess she's just living there, kind of believing he's dead, but not really moving on with her life, just grieving, and that never really gets touched on again, the kind of mental harm that that would do to someone, like, uh, especially at that age. But he just comes back, and it's all fine then, I guess. <laughs> and then what? He, this is where he becomes a traveling salesman? Yeah, this is where it starts to get less interesting. Yeah. Um, where he's just like, I never cared much for being at home, so, you know, so I, just I worked my a wife lot. and child, yeah, like, oh, oh god, that reminds me of that line, um, it, when they were, when he was talking, um, to his son, I don't remember exactly what it was, but they were saying something about taking care of babies. Oh, yeah. And he just kind of, there's this throwaway line where he says, like, oh, I didn't really ever do that, and I was like, oh, okay, so we definitely know what kind of father you were, like... It's woof. Um, the, the narrative doesn't really dwell on it, but it's just kind of a throwaway line that, like, yeah, I didn't really ever care for my infant son. And it's like, oh, all right. Um. <laughs> yeah, hold on. This, this scene just really, like, like uh, struck a nerve with me now because they're talking and the dad says, I don't think you're ready for what's coming. The changing the diapers, the late right. nights, blah, right. blah, blah. And he's like, well, did you do any of that? And he was like, nah. I, I, <laughs> that like, was the point the where. Who the fuck are you to tell your son he's not ready? I lost all <laughs> sympathy for that character. I was like, I'm sorry. Nope. That's just going to be a no from me. Like, it, the, the fact that we're just going to put it out there that he, like, 
cared so little about being a family man, despite the fact that he just had to get married. But once he gets married, he just yeah, can't be bothered. Yeah, he's never at home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't take care of his son, and he doesn't want to stay at home with his wife. I Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't with... I don't... It's, and it never really gets resolved. Like, that never is, nope. like, presented as something that he has to own up to. Nope, and his wife never seems to have a problem no, with it. No, she's... Oh, she is the ideal woman, I'm sure. She never complains about anything. She's always just like, oh, you know, well, we just gotta let your father, like... Oh, that's just your father. Things. Yeah, like, I... Oh, my God. It's... The more I'm thinking about well, it... Well, to catch an uncatchable oh woman, you gotta get wet and ready. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like, this woman doesn't seem very uncatchable. She got engaged to two different men and has no opinions on anything like she seems pretty easy to get honestly <laughs> like no offense but so, so he's a traveling salesman he is traveling far and wide and at this point he ends up in texas where he once again runs into steve buscemi <laughs> yeah who was there to rob a bank <laughs> <laughs> okay that was kind of funny i'm not gonna lie i i loved yeah, that whole that quick turnaround <laughs> He hands out a gun. He's <laughs> Just like, Here. like, help me rob this yeah. bank. <laughs> and then it turns out there's only like $200 in there because of <laughs> reasons. Depressing. Um, yeah, this wasn't even during the Great Depression. This no. was much later. And they get away. Um, and Edward tells him that like, oh, if you want to get where the money's at, you go into like to Wall Street or something. And there's this joke about, oh, he went into to finance or something to Wall Street. He's going to become the biggest bank robber of them all, Herder. Hey. <laughs> they said, fuck capitalism. <laughs> I, I did like, uh, we get another uh, moment of that when he goes back to uh, Spectre. Um, yes. When when uh, Steve Buscemi and uh, Ed are in the car and he's like, what'd you get from the vault? And there's just like a few 20s yeah. and he's like this was it your deposit slips here he's like well i didn't want you to leave him <laughs> <laughs> i didn't catch that i was probably writing i did not catch that <laughs> he may be a bad husband and father but apparently he's a good friend yeah it's <laughs> i think that he was definitely a bad father kind of unclear whether or not he was a bad husband probably a pretty good friend overall so there's like a sliding scale so, did we get any more stories from the father before we jump to the son finding out stuff from Jenny? Yeah, I was going to say, because there was that weird tangent with her that I still don't really know what to make of Should we of just that. jump into the tangent? Yeah. Uh, so, the son so finds some basically, slips. Yeah, the son is in charge of going through all of his father's old paperwork because the mom's like, oh, I wouldn't understand it anyway. Um, and he finds some payments to this woman named Jenny, right? And he thinks that he was having an affair. Right. And so he goes yeah, to it, find Jenny. What, Justin? Yeah, it's the de- <clears throat> it's the deed that he... Right. Her name's on it, so it might be co-owned between right. the two. So he goes to that address. Um, so, so the son, whose name I don't remember, goes sets out to investigate why this random woman's name is on a deed that his father has. Um, it turns out that Spectre got hit hard by the real world. Um, people showed up and started, I don't know, buying up property and evicting the, yeah, the people who live there. Because this is the other, this is the other fuck capitalism uh, moment. Because they're right. like uh, banks and creditors and right. They didn't have jobs. They like trade an apple pie, traded an apple pie for yard work or something. Um, and so these people basically got forced out of their homes, and Spectre was turned into a ghost town. Um, 
and then Ed shows up, Edward shows up, and basically buys up Spectre, ends up owning the whole town, but restores it to what it once was. Edward owns the whole town of Spectre now, um, except Ginny, the girl who was in love with him, um, her house is on, like, the outskirts of town, and it's fallen into disrepair, and... Edward offers to buy her house from her, and she won't sell it. So Edward ends up fixing up her house without, you know, buying it from her. Um, he would show up on weekends and time that he had away from home. Um, the, the movie makes it very clear that he had no romantic anything with her because at one point she, you know, she tries to kiss him. Um, and he won't even allow that. He says, I'm very much in love with my wife, which you would never know from the rest of the context of the story. Mm. Um, but, okay, this is the most most subdued role I've ever seen from Helena Bonham Carter, and she kills it. Yeah. This is probably my favorite, like, acting performance I have ever seen from her. Yeah, she actually gets to she do some fantastic. acting that feels like a real person. Yes. Not a cartoonish caricature. Right. And you're like, oh, right, Helena Bonham yes. Carter can actually act. She just doesn't usually want to. <laughs> <laughs> or Tim Burton doesn't want her to. Uh, speaking of cartoony Tim Burton things, uh, we get we get the slanted architecture with her disrepair yeah. house. Oh, of course. He of got course. it in. He stuck it in. <laughs> Tim Burton requires that. And also Tim Burton loves little, like, uh, creepy, cutesy... Americana neighborhoods like Edward Scissorhands for yeah. interest uh, for instance like definitely a thing for him Yeah. Um, so I don't know I didn't really understand the point of this subplot other than just to give uh, Jenny uh, as a mouthpiece for the story to like tell us more about the character um, more about the father I should say uh, I don't know well, the the son does say at one point that um, he felt like his father had had two lives, um, like one that he had at home, and then his other life, kind of. Um, and that's sort of his theory for what's going on with his dad, like how he seems like like two people, or or rather, he seems like his whole self is never really there with his family. Which is, once again, pretty depressing, but it is what it is. So this might just be me being dumb. Um, Ginny is aware of the witch stories. And it plays into the whole he was early, then he was late thing. How much of the magical stuff in this movie is... I don't know. Literal. It's not... I... Because I'm very I don't think you're supposed to know. (laughs) No, you're you're probably... Honestly, you're not. No, it's... The whole whole point of it is that you don't know how much of his stories is true or not. So this is just playing into that even more. Because it's it's confirming a little bit of it. But you're like, how much does that... Does that affect anything else? Like, how much of what she is saying is true? It's it's just playing into yeah. the story's whole thing. Yes. Um, right. This character was an interesting choice, but I don't know all... I don't necessarily know what it ended up accomplishing, because the character kind of exists at this weird boundary between 
the father's fictionalized mythic storytelling and the real world because she talks to the son. So she's kind of this character who exists on both sides of that coin, but it's hard to say why exactly. I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you think her function, her, her role in the story is? That's what I'm confused about because at, at first I thought she was like there to clear everything up, but it just kind of muddied everything. The only thing I got from this scene was great job from Helena Bonham Yeah, Carter. <laughs> that's honestly all that I was thinking about. Um, and honestly, I need to rewatch this scene because I'm a level with y'all. I was a little drunk at that point, so <laughs> I wasn't at like 100. Um, so I do need to rewatch this because I feel like there was a lot of... If there was any subtle character work in this movie, it was being done here. Um... Yeah. And I really think I need to rewatch that with that in mind. So I think after this, we go to the hospital effectively. Right? I'm not skipping anything. Major. I don't think there was. Uh, yeah, when he returns, that. his family's right. gone. So yeah. the son goes and meets his dad at the hospital, and he, he stays with him overnight um, and talks to his dad. Um, and this is where they finally have their heart-to-hearts, heart-to-heart conversations. Um, and there is some fantastic shot reverse shot going on in this scene where like when the father and son are talking and it's cutting back and forth, their faces like exactly fill the empty space in the reverse shot. Hmm. Um, it's, it's really good. Um, and so Edward says, this isn't how I go. And this is where his son starts making up a story like his dad did, um, <clears throat> telling him how it's going to happen. We have to infer that the, it was the conversation with Helena Bonham with Carter that, that changed think his heart told him? on this. Or I was going to say that just led him to have a change of heart towards his father and to like, he kind of accepts the story, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. So that's why he starts telling his own. His, he, he wanted to believe so many bad things about his dad. But then, like, he, he just couldn't find anything confirming it other than the fact that he, you know, was never there. Yeah, which is enough on its own. But, yeah, at least he wasn't a cheater. I mean, there's that. But, um, um so. So, yeah, so he. Is, he tells the story of the funeral. Right. And everyone is there. Right, which I'll I'll admit this one this one gets me a little bit like this one the, it 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 cranks it up a little bit for me like because um, up until this point it I kind of feel a little ambivalent about it I'm like okay this guy's kind of an asshole I don't really care what happens to him but it's a combination of the son kind of taking control of the narrative if that makes sense and creating his own story. So he's, like, kind of coming into his own in that way. Um, and also kind of respecting, I guess, I guess honoring his father's love for, for the story, for the narrative. Right. For the larger than life. Because clearly he remembers them. Uh, yes. he The son is the one telling the story here, and all of the characters are there. Yes. Right. It's, I'll admit, it's an affecting scene, um, especially because... The movie kind of very clearly tells you that it's both real and not real. Like, that's what's so fascinating yeah. about it. It's He's not literally he's... carrying him down to the river, but the the story is so real in their minds at that moment that 
that right. it's like he is doing that. He, he carries his father, yeah. and he tells me he weighs nothing. They leave the hospital. They go down to the river. Everyone is there. It's like a big party. And he carries his father down to the water, and his father turns into a big fish and swims away. Um, and then his dad says, that's exactly how I go. Or how it happens. Yeah. And then he passes away and the son gets up and, you know, makes the phone call. What happens after that? Do they cut to, like, the actual funeral? I think, Okay, because, yes. yeah, the son's version of the story, it had all the characters, like, in their outfits and get-ups from his father's versions of the stories. But then in the real funeral, this is where we see the real people. Um, like, the ringmaster is an old man. We see the Siamese twins are actually just regular twins. So it's like all the people were real, but in their more... He did exaggerate a lot. Right, he did exaggerate it, but there was there was truth there. Um, it's, it's, as, it's, yes. The whole point is that, like, you know, fishermen telling a story about how big a fish that they caught was. Right. That's, they're just exact. Every fisher, fisherman story has a little bit of exaggeration to it, which is the whole premise of this movie. Yes. Um, so... I do, I do really like the ending of this movie. You know, so many movies are great and then are undone by a bad ending. This is kind of the opposite of that. This is kind of a movie that I kind of don't really know how to feel about it until the ending, which is admittedly really good. Um, yeah. And I do really like it. And it's very affecting because it... How do I put this? The fact that... Um, the father believed he would only die in a very particular way or he would only go in a very particular way and then he it's like he so much believed that shared moment with his son where his son was was continuing the story like that was what he wanted the whole time it was so real for him that he actually could die peacefully with that because it was what he had believed his whole life would happen. Like it was so real to him. It was so true. And I don't know. That's it's, it's a little, (laughs) it takes a little thinking about (laughs) for sure. But I think it, it it definitely works um, in the context of the story. It's also nice because it, before it uh, fades out and goes to the fish jumping out of the river um uh, everyone's kind of like talking and you can tell they're kind of like swapping yeah. stories right this is will getting to hear the real version that is a um, cool moment for the first time from right people. um all the people that were actually there in the stories are swapping stories and then after the funeral we cut to um will's will's son edward's grandson is telling the stories about his grandfather mm-hmm. um which were the Oh, that's right. I'm so focused on I this know. fish that I <laughs> the forgot. That's okay. <laughs> the, the movie has the the final line is is great. Um, that was my father's final joke, I guess. A man tells his story so many times that he becomes the stories. They live on after him, and in that way, he becomes immortal. Ooh, that's good. See, that's Heavy. the good stuff. <laughs> that's the thing. This movie annoys me on so many levels, but when it gets really into that meta mythic shit, I really like that. Like, that's the stuff I live for. Um, right. And, and so, so okay. So I had notes. Now that we've kind of gotten to the end here, <laughs> ASMR of my papers rustling. Oh, I and just ripping. tore that paper. That's cool. Anyway, um. <laughs> 
We can tape that back together. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote down that um, both of the both of these stories that we've talked about tonight, but I think more so this one, uh, are a meta commentary on storytelling itself. Uh, the story becomes true in the telling of it. So it, there's always th- that kind of question in the viewer's mind, like how much of this is true, how much is not. And I think in both cases we are meant to understand that it is true, or at least the heart of it is true. Now, in Secondhand Lions, it, it is literally true. Like, it just happened. In Big Fish, it, yeah. it you're never quite sure how much of it literally happened that way and how much it didn't, but the, the heart of it is true. There is truth there. Um, so it it's like, and especially in the case of the son in Big Fish... The story becomes true when he continues it. Like, that's the moment where he accepts it and where um, he kind of accepts his father's legacy, I guess. Um, and it, so, yeah, it is kind of this, <laughs> this like, meta view of how storytelling works in general. Like, it doesn't work unless you accept that it is. Um, does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> um, and that's kind of why I think I am more accepting of the outlandish premises of some of these stories than I was when I was younger. Because I think a lot of us, those of us who spend a lot of time watching movies and thinking about story structure and stuff like that, I think we've all probably gone through that that period of time where we get really annoyed at unrealistic things or at contrived circumstances. Like, and... <laughs> Some of that still persists. Granted, I'm still like, oh, okay, she goes to Auburn, or like, well, what what country was the sheik a sheik of? Like the this kind of or like getting hung up on these details. But it's not really about that at the end of the day. And I think at some point we get to the point where we realize that, where we realize it's more about what is the story saying. Like, and like, as I said in my notes. The son telling the story about carrying the father into the river makes what the father saw as a child reality. Um, so, so it's it's outlandish, but the fact that someone is acknowledging the truth of it, the fact that someone is taking it for what it is, um, makes it seem more real. Like it makes it so real that um, that he can die happy you know that he that his story came full circle kind of yeah because it um if you take it uh as metaphor allegory whatever you want to call it like uh the rest of edward's stories are um the death he saw was being carried uh to the river representing death uh by his son Mm -hmm. and by the son sitting there at the hospital comforting him as he's mm-hmm. passing that metaphorically right which is whoa <laughs> <laughs> story analysis <laughs> i'm bad at this <laughs> right and that's what's so lovely about it is that while they they had trouble connecting in life they were able to connect through this story they were able to connect through passing this on and like creating this shared universe together kind of um that only they could really see and 
I don't know. I think there's definitely something really powerful in that because it kind of shows how, how we, as people, can connect to each other through story, which is, I mean, you know, why are we even having this podcast? That's the whole point, right? Like, <laughs> the stories bring people together. They they give us a frame of reference for for things that we feel, things that we um want to experience but maybe never really can things that we want to understand but maybe don't want to experience ourselves (laughs) all that kind of stuff um and I think both of these movies are about that ultimately um are about kind of like maybe romanticizing a little bit the the human experience but also comparing it comparing the romanticized experiences and adventures of life with the the more mundane stuff but how you can also see that in a a romanticized light a an appreciation of how even the more mundane aspects of existence can be beautiful um, <laughs> I don't know. I think, and and that is something that I appreciate about both these movies, even though, like I said, they do kind of annoy me because they, they approach it from a very specific viewpoint, um, which is, you know, <laughs> a Southern white man's viewpoint. And I would love to see it from literally anyone else's, but, um, but there is something I, I would I would venture to say universal about it in that it kind of allows you to contextualize these things and to kind of make yourself the hero of your own story. It it provides you a frame of reference for that because I mean, well, <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the guys in secondhand lines, they actually were out there doing crazy <laughs> heroic shit. But um, in Big Fish, it's it's more about creating a narrative for yourself, because even if it didn't literally happen that way, it's it's in how you look at it. You know, he saw his life as an adventure. And even if it wasn't everything that he portrayed it as, that's how that's how he lived it. Well said. That was beautifully spoken. Sure. I, guess. <laughs> I have nothing else to say about these two movies. <laughs> Well, Stephanie just hit all the nails on yeah. all of the heads. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Playing them like a xylophone. Uh, I have a question for our audience this week. If you were given the chance to see your death, oh. would you want to or not? No. No. Caleb was like aggressively <laughs> shaking his head before he said no. I'm leaning towards no, but I see the appeal. I, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I do not. I think I know how I tend to obsess over stuff. Um, and I know that if I were to see that, like, even if I didn't know, like, when it would happen, I know I would spend however much time I had left obsessing over it and trying to escape it. Um, I do not think it would be a net positive for me. Audience, what about you? Would you want to know? Would you not want to know? Uh, let us know on our social media. Speaking of social media, you can find me everywhere at Blame It On Butler. You can find me at actual underscore Caleb. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Steph Has No Name and on Letterboxd at Raise Left Boob. We're just going to keep that one, I guess, for all time because, yeah, because why not? It's never it's, not funny. Yeah, it's great. I'm, <laughs> I'm hilarious. Uh, yeah, so look us up. Um, yeah. We'll catch you guys next episode. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Love ya. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.